Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Lucas on Life. Hello and a very warm welcome from very cold and snowy Colorado. Over the last 18 months, there's been a pandemic, obviously, that's affected churches, politics, families, friendships. But I'm not actually talking about COVID. And I promise I won't use the word COVID anymore in this program. The pandemic that has affected our health has also affected our unity. People have left churches because they wanted everyone to wear a mask because they wanted nobody to wear a mask, because they were convinced that the government's response has been generally good, or because they take the view that it's been awful. Families have experienced tension. I recently heard a true story about one man who has completely disowned his daughter because she took a different view about what should be done during this crisis. It's been a really difficult time for church leaders, too, who often feel that whatever direction they take, someone's going to be very upset with them and that they just can't win. So tonight and next week as well, we're going to talk about maintaining unity in our churches. The New Testament teaches that God has given us unity through the work of Christ and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. But we're also told that we have the responsibility of maintaining that unity. So how might that work? Let's think about unity. It's a word that I often hear in church circles, and whenever it's uttered, I get nervous about the potential threat to the unity of that local church. It's the word offended. If I had a pound coin for every time I've heard a Christian use the O word, I'd weigh a ton. Some believers have a fantastic capacity to be offended. They're the ones everyone else in the church describes as prickly, sensitive, awkward, or difficult. You can always hear the crunch crunch of eggshells being walked on when people get around them. It doesn't take much to irritate them. I met four black belt offended types recently. They were older ladies and they were so upset with me, they stomped out of a Sunday evening church meeting before I'd even started preaching. I had noticed that five rows back, there was a lot of muttering, sniffing, narrowing of eyes, and then finally the march of the haughty four. So why the quadruple walkout? I later learned that my sin was that I'd invited the congregation to take a few pre-sermon moments to say hello to each other. Apparently, this particular church doesn't include the saying of hello in its vision statement, hence the huffy-puffy walkout. The pastor was a warm-hearted, compassionate shepherd who was eager to visit the retiring sisters to restore them as lost sheep to the flock. I admire him. I was inclined towards a lamb kebab with heaps of mint sauce. Easily offended people bore me. I know. I repent. Sue is a lady that I bumped into recently who could so easily have chosen the offended look, you know, pouting lip, downcast eyes and woundedness bleeding from every pore. But she didn't go that way. She chose to laugh instead. 
She was walking into our Sunday morning service in church. I was in a hurry and I didn't pay any attention to the fact that she was pushing something in front of her as she navigated her way through the double doors. Sue had been pregnant. I mean, hugely pregnant. So massive had she become during the past nine months that it was rumoured that Goodyear was sponsoring her confinement. Hurrying in behind her, I glanced momentarily at what seemed to be her still considerable girth, and the words tumbled out before my brain had time to catch them. So, Sue, no baby yet then? She paused in the doorway, obviously stunned by my rank stupidity. Actually, Jeff, I had the baby this week. That's why I'm pushing this pram, believe it or not. Her eyes sparkled with the joy that breaks out when one meets a truly, authentically stupid person like me. But there was no malice or edge in her voice, no rush to offendedness. I'm so sorry, Sue. I mean, uh, congratulations. It's just that you still look um, so big, said Sue, completing my hapless sentence. I frantically searched for some ground of the swallow-me-up-now variety. Well, um, sorry, Sue. Well done anyway. He's beautiful, I gushed, praying to God as I did that the bundle before me was a male of the species. Sue could have been irritated, galled, or just mildly upset by my stupidity. She could have been offended. But she was the reverse. She laughed with me, not at me. And the next time I saw her at church, she asked if I was doing okay. I nearly telephoned you that afternoon, she smiled. I was really worried that you might have been concerned. You didn't have to be at all. She could have glared, but she grinned. She gave grace in the face of my mindlessness. Her hobbies don't include being offended. Let's be like her. Hooray for Sue. Be thinking about unity, staying together in the local church, and indeed maintaining a sense of harmony in our relationships. If we are going to do that, we've got to recognize that there are going to be times, just brace yourself for this, yes, there will be times when we are wrong. Men can be irrational creatures, to say the least. One of the more bizarre evidences of weird life on planet male is our deep reluctance to believe what the petrol gauge on our car is desperately trying to tell us. Despite the ominous sight of the white needle hovering just above the E and the yellow flashing light in the shape of a petrol can, and in the case of some higher-end European luxury cars, the terrifying voice of a German woman booming words through our car stereo and barking that we're getting low on fuel, somehow we take this as a personal challenge and do everything we can to get home without taking the two or three minutes needed to do the obvious and fill the tank. So it was for me during a family holiday with friends. We were in the West Country and were about to venture onto Dartmoor. Despite the fact that we were moving into foggy, treacherous territory where the hound of the Baskervilles roams free, I decided to ignore the fact that we only had a quarter of a tank left. But that was but the first mistake of the day on my part. There would be a trinity of errors. The second lash-up came when, unsure about our route once we were actually on the moor, I took a turning that I felt convinced was the right one, because I have an intuitive sense of direction, not. And it took us down what felt like a waterlogged potholed farm track, which was probably because it was a waterlogged potholed farm track. We then found ourselves in an area 
which sported lots of red flags that fluttered bravely along the roadside. We marvelled at the loveliness of the locals getting together for frequent fates and fairs and carnivals, and then realised that we were slap bang in the middle of an army firing range. My confidence that we were on the correct road had led us into a place where we could easily end up in the sights of a goggle-wearing military man in a tank, a chap with a lifelong ambition to fire an armour-piercing shell at a moving target, like us. So now we were lost on the moors with the petrol gauge on E, praying that the Lord would miraculously provide us with a large petrol station, preferably one that served cappuccinos, and we were stranded in the middle of a potential war zone. But there was yet more to come. We finally made our way back to civilization and filled up with petrol and then noticed a house for sale. We stopped and eagerly jumped out of the car and wandered up to the for sale sign, which also contained some leaflets that showed the price. Thinking of myself now as an expert in the UK housing market, I turned to my friend and made a solemn declaration of absolute certainty. Mark my words, I said, this house will never, ever sell. It's just priced way above the market. These sellers are crazy. At that exact moment, a car drew up that had an estate agent sticker on the driver's door, and a suited man hopped out and walked swiftly over to the for sale sign and tacked a huge sold board over it as I looked on. It was then that I realized once again a truth that is unpalatable to most of us and quite unthinkable to some, and that is we can be wrong. If we don't figure that out, unity in our relationships and in our churches is definitely going to be threatened. Perhaps we get used to the feeling that we are in the right. The fact that we hold a Bible in our hands, which we rightly insist is the inspired word of God, gives us a sense of consistently being in the know. Then we rush to the conclusion that it's our choice of music, our understanding of the Bible, our brand of church and our entire worldview on life, in all of these areas, we're basically in the right, most, if not all, the time. And while we stubbornly insist on being experts, our churches implode, our marriages erode, and others around us take a vow of silence rather than take us on. So let's take notice of the fuel gauge, read the map. Don't jump to swift conclusions about property prices. In short, know this, and it might just prevent us from getting shelled by a British army tank. We can be wrong. As we are talking about unity tonight, it occurs to me that one of the threats to unity is our desire for uniformity. Moreover, we'd quite like other people to be like us, think like us, worship like us, and believe exactly like us. We're nervous about our differences rather than celebrating them. An example of this comes from my school days. French was never my subject at school. My long-suffering French teacher, Mr. Ernie Peckett, his real name, believe me, finally booted me out of the class because I got my French salutations wrong. I wanted to attract the attention of the spotty youth who sat at the desk in front of me. Instead of greeting him with a jaunty, bonjour, monsieur, I cut to the quick and jabbed him in the left buttock with a compass point. The wounded chap, not consoled by the fact that he had pierced flesh 20 years before it became fashionable, roared his protest in English, which signalled my final exit from the class. So it is that I am now, like many English people, able to say please and thank you in French and little more. 
Oh, and I can also ask the time in French, but this is of little use as I have my own watch. And I can ask for directions to the railway station and knowing the way to La Gare would have been helpful in a number of occasions, but I wouldn't have been able to understand the reply unless it involves some linguistically neutral pointing. So I do what most English people do in France. I speak English with a French accent. Hello, how are you? I inquire, my tone a hybrid of Maurice Chevalier and Peter Sellers. I usually tack a triumphant monsieur on the end of every sentence, which is cool unless the person with whom I'm conversing happens to be a female. Thus, my recent trip to Paris was a series of embarrassing gaffes with more arm waving than a windmill. I did try to ask for a chair in a cafe, but it turns out that I actually asked to sit down on a dog. Most Parisians I met smiled graciously when I apologised for my lack of French and spoke fine English themselves. One morning, I observed the antics of a herd of fellow English tourists, and I have to say, I felt ashamed. They were mimicking in high-pitched parrot fashion the Frenchman who was trying to sell them a metro ticket. Obviously graduates from the Alf Garnet School of International Diplomacy, they were totally aghast and appalled even because this gentleman didn't speak English like themselves, despite the screamingly obvious fact that they were guests in France, his country. Quite simply, they were of the opinion that everyone should look and sound like they looked and sounded. Lurking beneath their crass behaviour was the deception that to be different is to be inferior. Kindly conform, be like us, or you are ever so slightly less valuable and significant than we are, for we, after all, are normal, or so that deception goes. Religion often creates colourless uniformity. Those zealous bloodhounds, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, they were always hot on the trail of Jesus. His main crime was that he was so different. They sniffed the scent of his uniqueness and bayed like dogs. But totally refusing to conform to their expectations, Jesus marched to a different drumbeat, one tapped out by his father. At every turn, they tried to smother him with sameness and desperately sought to buckle him into their religious straitjackets, and they failed. Winsome escapologist that he was and is, he not only resisted their cloning, but called his friends and followers to a life of studied non-conformity. He repeatedly spoke out about the bland pseudo-spirituality of the teachers of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. His call was, don't be like them. I find that I can be guilty of religious control freakery, being more comfortable around folks who worship like I do, who share a common view of how church leadership should be structured and use the same general Christian vocabulary as my own. Maybe that's normal, birds of a feather and all that. But when my desire for comfort causes me to be dismissive of others who don't fit the mould of my making, then blind arrogance has set in and we're not far from division, unity threatened. Sometimes parenting is about an inappropriate corralling of our children in an attempt to turn out little facsimiles of us. Here I blush. Sometimes I have mistaken a desire that my children be more like Jesus with a crusade to actually make them more like me. Incredibly, you and I can be guilty of demanding conformity from God himself. Church can be about a frantic attempt to make God fit our box. We frantically systemize him. We try to peg him down like those tiny people fussing over Gulliver. We who are made in his image 
desperately try to make him in our image. So let's build churches that are united because they are truly colorful and diverse communities where eccentricity is welcomed rather than feared and where God's one-offs don't need to sacrifice their uniqueness in order to belong. Regimen is for the cult, not the church. And by the way, my French vocabulary has actually grown by 30%. Here's proof. Au revoir. See you next time. Lucas on Life. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. At a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.